Many times we feel paralyzed by fear and body hatred. In order to feel better about ourselves and live the life we really want to manifest, we have to own up to our difficult feelings and self-sabotaging thoughts and behaviors. We all enter this world naked, and now it's time to feel good naked. No matter what your body size or your life circumstances, this is Feel Good Naked Radio, and your host is Lar Redmond. On this program, Lar will help you become more embodied, self-empowered, and mindful to take charge of whom you really are and to live the life you deserve to live. Now, here's your host, Laura Redmond. Hello and welcome to another episode of Feel Good Naked Radio. I am your embodied guide, Laura Redmond, and my guest today is best-selling author, teacher, and speaker, Mark Matusik. Mark's work focuses on personal awakening and creative excellence through transformational writing and self-inquiry. And I, I want to just open by reading these beautiful sentences that I found in one of his books entitled, When You're Falling, Dive, Lessons in the Art of Living. We must accept heartbreak to be fully human We cannot love without tasting some blood, nor connect without braving some chink in our armor. Those who are most spiritually naked, most transparent, are also those who see most fully. Welcome to the show, Mark Matusik. Thank you, Laura. It's great to be here. I'm just so excited to finally talk to you. Our mutual friend, Susan Fisher, is who led me to your work, and I just know that we have many arteries that connect us, even though our life in New York in the 80s wasn't face-to-face. I feel like we could play the Kevin Bacon game, and we'd have a lot of names. (laughs) I, I think you're probably right. We were both in the village, isn't that right? Well, I didn't live in the village, but that Russian bathhouse was my sanctuary. I loved going there during the co-ed days on Saturdays and Sundays. So that's when I was there as weekends when I wasn't working. (laughs) Great. Yes, I love that place. I'm curious how you would define embodied because I created this show just personally. I feel like the word embodied is many things, but I'm going to ask you what you think of with that word embodied. What does that mean to you? It means being present. Uh, I I like what Eckhart Tolle says uh, about coming into the body in order to uh, experience the now fully. That when we're in our flesh, when we feel the energy uh, in our muscles, and when we're aware of our physical presence, we can't be anywhere but where we are. So for me, embodiment and presence are synonymous. And when you think of being present, does that take you to a place that is more spiritual, mental, or is it full package, spiritual, mental, body, emotion? All full package. For me, yeah. it's, not, it's not presence if it doesn't include all of those. Yeah. Well, that's why the word takes me in so many interesting directions with getting experts on because a lot of people actually think it's just physical like oh I'm in my body therefore I'm embodied but it really is a deeper realm of being with self at all moments and all times body without self-awareness isn't presence yeah no that's for sure and we're living in a world that will 
force you every second to try to be present in a more exalted way than I believe ever before has existed. So uh, it has never been more needed. And that's why the conversation today is going to help many people. Because, you know, one of the things I'm certain you must see in all of your workshops is people are overwhelmed. They are riddled with anxiety and fear. And so the work you're doing through the self-inquiry, which I want you to explain more clearly for people listening, but this transformational writing, um, tell us what that is. Explain how that works with a workshop or just when you're helping clients one-on-one. Well, sure. Uh, What I discovered over 30 plus years of being a memoirist um, as well as a seeker and a teacher is that when I told the truth, my story changed. In other words, when I tapped into what was authentic for me in the moment, we're talking about lowercase t, truth, messy human subjective truth, uh, my story about my life and myself uh, shifted necessarily because my, uh, my perspective shifted. And when my story shifted, my life was transformed because, of course, life follows uh, uh, thinking and life follows imagination. So it became when you tell your truth, your story changes. When your story changes, your life is transformed. And that's sort of become the core of what I do as a teacher. Uh, and what I, people are often surprised to discover is that although they think of themselves as honest people for the most part, you know, we all, most of us try to be honest most of the time, uh, we are lying and telling half-truths and whitewashing and uh, omitting uh, all the time. Uh, we do that as socialized beings, and, and when we realize that we are telling ourselves stories uh, that are not who we are or the absolute truth, it creates a kind of chink in our awareness that insight enters into, uh, and you realize that you're the storyteller and not the story, uh, and that what you consider to be your story, your self-image, is actually a fluid, malleable uh, thing that's always evolving, and when you realize that, it's a great uh, moment of, of aha and liberation. So that that's in a nutshell what I do using targeted questions, you know, penetrating and sort of essential questions, the kind of questions we don't usually ask outside of therapy or, or a church confessional. Um, when we respond to those questions, uh, we tap into awareness that we're not even, uh, sh- we didn't even know that we had. And that's the beauty of this practice. That's why I love so much teaching this. Well, and it occurs to me that the story that one may tell themselves is, uh, is it is it what they're capable of believing or is it what they want to believe or is it always a direct link to the, quote, truth as they believe it? I, I mean, it, it begs for me to go deeper into the understanding of truth and then why the story would be told incorrectly. Until it is told honestly. Oh, oh that's, a, that's a great question. I mean, the reason is uh, that we absorb um, information from the families we're brought up in, the cultures we're brought up in, expectations that aren't um, necessarily true for us, uh, ideas that are received from, from the world around us. Uh, until we start to clear away the things that we have taken on that aren't ours, that we don't actually, that aren't actually true for us. Um, then we can't discover the the nature of our authentic voice. Um, and the mind believes what we tell it until we begin to question the stories, until we begin to question our, our, our thoughts. So this is about, all about questioning the narratives that we use to explain ourselves uh, and how we hold experience. 
You know, the mind creates stories naturally, organically. We're homo narens. We're the storytelling ape. You know, that's what we do. Uh, we do it as a way of coping with reality, connecting dots, trying to figure out who we are and what we're doing here. That's natural and that's inevitable. Uh, the problem is that we come to confuse ourselves with these thoughts and with these um, with these versions of things. And, and I'm sure you've had that experience when uh, one story that you had about something in, in your life or about yourself uh, just completely fell apart with a new piece of information. And then you realize how arbitrary the narrative actually is. Uh, and when you see that, it becomes sort of more translucent instead of opaque uh, so that you don't quite believe your own version of things so um, so undoubtingly uh, and and it gives you the possibility of change and so then maybe the greatest asset or a great takeaway would be to know that your story one story will change as you develop and become more self-aware absolutely and, and absolutely Laura that, that's true I, I mean our stories are evolving all the time and we, we, we update them all the time we're just not aware that we're telling stories we're so confused between what we think and what is. And that's our essential suffering and confusion as human beings, is that we mistake what we think uh, for what is. And so we live in a kind of conceptualized reality uh, rather than being where we are. You and I were just talking about embodiment. Uh, there's the embodiment and then there's the story about being here. And those two things have very little to do with each other. Yeah, they're very different. Now, I had a trauma expert once explain that memory is always malleable and changing except for trauma memory, that that has a fixed place in the in the mind that can be as vivid and exacting as if it were recent, but that it does not change as other memory does. Have you ever have you ever heard that or have you ever explored that? I, I've heard I have heard it and I have explored it myself and I've, I've experienced it in my own life and also working with, with students. Uh, the, the wonderful trauma specialist Bessel van der Kolk uh, mm-hmm. gave, gave an interview to Krista Tippett that was really fascinating. And one of the things he said uh, was that the difference between people who can heal from trauma and people who stay stuck in trauma uh, is the ability to change the story. That mm. until, until we can reframe what has happened to us, uh, we, we can't live differently. We can't change the narrative and we can't imagine ourselves outside of that, that version of things. Um, James Hillman, the great Jungian psychologist, said something related. He said, uh, um, our lives are determined uh, by, not by our childhoods, but by the traumatized way we've learned to remember our childhoods. Uh, and that, that is the same idea that, that it comes through this prism of the mind and then we, we the, the story kind of sets like cement and until we start to chip away at it, it, it can just weigh us down and, and keep us stuck. And with trauma specifically, how does one chip away at that fixed texture that is so deeply, cellularly, painfully definitive to that person so how how give us an example of where you could take that type of memory and then let it go and release it as the story that defines you absolutely i work with a lot of people who've suffered early uh, childhood abuse sometimes sexual sometimes not Uh, and these are some of the most traumatized people uh, that i work with and the first thing that i suggest they do is cultivate witness 
consciousness, this ability to step back from our own experience that we cultivate in meditation, uh, that psychologists call metacognition, the ability to see our own thoughts and to feel our, to, to to see our own feelings uh, and from from a um, a more objective and balanced place. So when you have that firm seat, that place where you're not re-traumatizing yourself by diving into the memories, uh, and you access the wisdom that you have in your present moment uh, consciousness, uh, it's possible to uh, disentangle from this fixed uh, trauma story from the past. The problem is that a lot of people think they need to go back and re-experience it, enter into the body of that child again, and then folks get lost. Uh, the thing about writing uh, for transformation is that we always do it from the present with what we know today. Uh, and so folks I've worked with are able to um, disentangle and, and uh, de- disidentify with this, this victim child that they've carried around as their, as their kind of alter ego uh, and, and, and have compassion for that, that child. Who, who no longer exists and, 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 you know, make space for the, the, the pain of that child while not allowing the child to keep telling that same old story because it's the child that's telling that story. So we, we sort of take it back. We take our power back from the infantilized or the traumatized part of ourselves that felt powerless. And, and then we can begin to shift these, these stories. You wrote in the same book I referred to earlier when your falling dive, Lessons in the Art of Living, that while the desire to avoid pain may be normal, denial as a long-term strategy is a cold, narrow way to live, which I loved that. Well, it's true. Don't, don't haven't, haven't you found that? The, the more denial there is in your life, the narrower your life becomes. You can't look there. You can't go there. You can't ask that question. You can't think about that memory. So, so the, the, everything shrinks um, in the effort to deny, in the effort to, to um, either dissociate or, or, or repress painful memories. So the idea is to open the aperture by making space for the pain that has happened. Uh, and allowing ourselves to, to, to feel it and know at the same time that we are not that pain. We're not that, 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 that child anymore. And that's, um, that's the whole game. I mean, once we begin to do that, uh, then we can evolve uh, in ways that, that, that we simply can't when we're identified with the narrative. And do you find in your workshops that some people, until they begin that writing process that seems more intimate and safe than than other modalities may be, that they actually will uncover something that isn't even conscious? All the time. All Hmm. the time. And and I do one exercise where I ask people to write about a secret that they've never shared with anyone. Uh, And it never fails that the person who raises their hand and says, I'm a therapist, I've been doing this for 50 years, I don't have any (laughs) secrets, I have an open book. It never fails that they have the biggest whoppers. (laughs) (laughs) And and they start that. So I say, they say, so what should I do with the time? I say, write about not having a secret. And as they do that, (laughs) the secret starts to emerge and they're sort of shocked. It's right in front of our faces. Our powers of denial are epic uh, and and so much more clever than we give give them uh, credit for. So that's the beauty of of doing any kind of self-inquiry, whether it's writing or or something else, is that we, we get to see the 
games of our own minds, and we get to uh, re- we get to see the strategies that we use or the mind uses to protect itself from the truth. Well, and one of the things I do love about social media, in particular Instagram, is sometimes we do attach so much ego. Uh, identity with what we quote do in the world and there's been this wonderful I believe opening and vulnerability thanks to Brene Brown that has you know given people this feeling of being able to say hey by the way this is what I'm struggling with and I'm a coach or am I you know and I'm a therapist and I do believe that's freeing and and hopeful and and we're all doing what we're doing in the world with the tools we have there is no judgment in that there is actual freedom in that and I love taking some of that ego out of that career or identity or um title absolutely and and that 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 also holds for professionals like like therapists who who are writing memoir I deal with people like this all the time and and they have a they have a very hard time um moving past this persona this professional role that they they play necessarily and 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 importantly in their lives as writers uh, you know how can i show that and not lose credibility you know how can i share the fact that i too went through uh, a trauma and still be trusted by my by my clients and i always say that your clients should they read this will trust you more because That's you've it. walked this path exactly exactly and that is the thing that i have found um when my life blew up it was so important for me to know that that was okay and then to take that into my work which strengthened and empowered and beautifully nurtured the space for others so I often say I'm here to teach what it is I'm here to learn and I have found that the leaders or the guides for me that do the same sort of idea behind their work are the most helpful to me so there really is a link there that's helpful to mention absolutely so yes you speak of the accuracy of intuition. Um, I wanted to talk about that. I loved the idea of the accuracy of intuition. So we're all intuitive beings, and many people will say to me, how do I strengthen my intuition? How do I further develop it? What would you say to that question? Once again, my answer would be presence, Laura. I mean, there's... We can't be intuitive or sense our intuition or hear the, the still small voice within ourselves if we're not here, <laughs> if we're not in our bodies, if we're not, if the mind isn't quieted, uh, if there is not a, a, a sense of balance, we, we can't feel the, the messages or hear the messages of, of intuition. So the first thing to do is to come, you know, come into the present and notice how we're feeling uh, and notice how different thoughts uh, create different emotions in our body so that we become familiar with the uh, sensation dimension of our body because intuition comes on the level generally uh, to begin with of of physical sensation Uh, there's an attraction there's a shutting down there's a contraction uh, there's fear mm, there's a there's elation Uh, those are keys to, to intuition, to what intuition is trying trying to tell us. So for me, at least, it often begins somatically, uh, but also then, of course, quieting the mind so that we can hear the the, the verbal promptings of, of the mind. Uh, there's no separation between uh, presence uh, and and awakening, presence and the awareness of, of our own intuition. Uh, and once you start to get that, which I'm sure you have, it's a, you know, it... it, it 
saves a lot of time and grief of the mind doubting itself and doing somersaults and second guessing and uh, and vacillating. Uh, I, I always try to go with first thoughts and first feelings because they seem to guide me in the most you know truthful and, and simple way. Uh, instead of live creating some story in my mind and then trying to live into that, which is which often uh, is either difficult or or you know sometimes even disastrous. But in your journey that I read in ugh, this book that I could not put down, uh, Sex, Death, Enlightenment, uh, everybody needs to read this book. It's so important. Sex, Death, Enlightenment, a true story. And it is a bestseller or was a bestseller. But in that book, you mentioned that the mind opens before the heart, and right now when you're saying being present, I, I just feel like for many people, and, and even in your book, there was a point in your life, in your story, where there wouldn't have been that, when, if someone had said, oh, you know, Mark, just be present and be have more of a respect for what that can give you and relief or understanding, it almost feels to me like it's four steps out from the beginning. Uh-huh. So, so, so maybe, maybe there is even somewhere to go before being present, which might be to open the mind and, and then to try to open the heart. So I was really intrigued by the idea that the mind opens before the heart. Mm. But that, that, that's mentioned in a particular context. I was uh, talking to a spiritual master and trying to understand why I felt so blocked in my ability to connect to the divine, connect God, Buddha mind, whatever you want to call it. Um, uh, and, and I kept waiting for my heart to just open. And what she said is that the mind must open first uh, before the heart in, in, that, in that context. Um, so that, that's where that comes from. But I, I hear what you're saying. The, but the truth is, Laura, that even... Opening the mind happens in the present moment. It only happens in the present. So you know we can't we can't open our minds unless we're uh, aware of what's going on in our minds at any at any given time. So um, you know both are true. Uh, I, I don't know anything. I, I don't know anything that presence doesn't uh, uh, strengthen and you know and facilitate. You know it, perhaps for you or perhaps I mean for for a lot of us. We need to get over the idea that this is even possible, you know, impo- that it's impossible to become present, to, to hear our intuition. So in that sense, we have to open our mind to the possibility of hearing intuition. And in that sense, I think you're right. I think that's exactly what happens. Well, and, and I don't even know if, again, you even realize how closed down the system has become until you listen And so I think listening is probably one of those things that can help anyone become more present in their life is just to listen. And and really, what does that mean? It means listening, which does not mean to plan before you speak. It means to just listen. Mm -hmm. And I don't think a lot of people can do that well in this culture of extraordinary speed. No, no, it creates a lot of anxiety. Exactly. And, and the anxiety and the fear and the stress becomes just this um, tsunami of sorts. And so I think even the word meditation for many people actually creates anxiety because they realize they're so adrenalized or the cortisol is peaking and they, they're used to that being the gear. So I often think that a writing exercise, and this is one of the things I was so pulled to you about, is that the writing exercise may just be 
a really important first step for people to just recognize the inner voice through your prompting or through your help. And some of your courses I want to will let people know they can do online, but really letting that voice come through is, is to me what seems like an imperative first step. Mm, yeah. Beautifully said. I, and I, I, I completely agree that, you know, writing is an, is an unparalleled way to uh, bring that voice out into the world and be able to see it in black and white. That's the amazing thing about about writing is that we, we we see ourselves in the mirror of the page, and a lot of folks don't like what they see, so they don't they don't like to write or they don't like to reread what they write. But that's where the insight uh, comes from. Uh, so I understand what you mean, and and then for folks who haven't don't have a can't hear their inner voice, uh, writing is a great way to begin to to listen. So what? What do you feel when you hear, in, in your life today, what do you feel when you hear the word enlightened? What, I, what, is, what well, does enlightened mean to you? Ah, what, and li- I like what Sharon Salzberg, a friend of mine, says about uh, enlightenment. She says that when you're sitting on the cushion or in the chair uh, and you realize that your mind has wandered, that's a moment of enlightenment. <laughs> and and. and that to me is 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 encouraging, relatable, and and feels within the realm of the possible. It's very humble, uh, as opposed to enlightenment, capital E, in terms of in terms of uh, some kind of you know otherworldly uh, spiritual liberation. So, and I like to think of enlightenment as as uh, something that's close, ne- that's near to me, uh, and something that I'm experiencing every day. You know, every time I realize that that I am being cruel or that. Uh, that I, that compassion would be helpful, or I need to forgive, or you know, I, I'm scared, but I'm moving forward anyway. That's a moment of enlightenment. That's a moment of liberation. We're liberating ourselves from the dictates of that thought stream, whatever whatever it is. And 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 so that's that's the way that's the way I look at it. You know, having said that, I have spent time with uh, a lot of spiritual masters of, of quite high attainment, and and they are in a different state. Uh, very often. Uh, one in particular, a uh, woman I know named Mother Mira, who lives in Germany, mm. quite an extraordinary being. I just wrote a book about her. Uh, and and she is in a state that I can't explain. And, and things happen around her. One feels things around her that, that, that I can't explain. But I hesitate to call it enlightenment. Mother Mira herself has said that enlightenment is something for uh, human beings who have to, who have done a lot of practice and strived and really, uh, some people are just born with it. It's like being born with perfect pitch. Um, some people study music. Some people are born with perfect pitch. Uh, and I don't know if that is an enli- a definition, uh, definition of enlightenment that uh, is helpful because I wasn't born Mother Mira. You know, I wasn't born mm. in that with that with that level of spiritual genius. I cannot wait for your book, um, Mother of the Unseen World, because I wanted so much more about Mother Mira after reading the book, uh, Sex, Death, Enlightenment. I mean, I just wanted more. So that was great to know you're writing about her. And how do you write about something that's hard to articulate? Well, (laughs) that's the question. Ah. It's the hardest thing I've ever written. Um, It actually came out uh, at the end of November. Uh, and at a certain point, I I had to completely turn it over, Laura, because I, I I got I couldn't figure it out. She's such an elusive being, and how does one write about things like 
you know, different states of consciousness without sounding flaky uh, or otherworldly. So it was very hard uh, and I struggled a lot and there came a point where I had to stop and, and I said, maybe I can't do this. There's something I'm not getting uh, and I won't go into any detail, but something shifted in me. I needed to have a, a realization that that was necessary before I could finish the book. It had to do with surrender uh, and it had, which is not my, my, my go-to position. <laughs> and, and I had to turn it over uh, in a way that I had never done before. Uh, and it was just at that moment that, that Mother Mira asked to see me, that uh, she said things to me that were quite inspiring, and I was able to, to finish the book. So it was a really tough book to write, but, but something I've wanted to do for actually since I, since I met her in 1985. So Mother of the Unseen World is, is available. One can order it now. Yes, indeed. Oh, good to know. I was I was not aware of that. I, I didn't know it was available now. But, you know, one of the things that I learned in your book, The Sex, Death, Enlightenment, speaking of, of what she helped you figure out in yourself, was this important link to surrender. And you spoke about it in with reference to letting other people in. Um, and I really, really related to that. Again, going back to trauma, I think sometimes without it being the story that defines someone, it does take surrender to a different place. So how have you got, where are you today with surrender? What, what, what would you say about surrender today in your life? I am much more surrendered than I've ever been. Uh, I mean, uh, historically, I was a very stubborn, um, somewhat narrow-minded, extremely willful, very, very ambitious uh, controlling uh, alpha kind of personality. That, that, that was my overcompensation for growing up in a household where I felt completely powerless. You know, I focused a lot on, on power. And as life has chipped away at me and enough stories have fallen apart and I've seen, been through enough catastrophes, uh, I have learned to lean into the mystery much more than before because I know how little I know. Uh, and I'm so deeply aware of not being in control. Uh, and that's the beauty of, of, of uh, catastrophe, which comes from the word to turn around, the Greek to turn around. It really does turn you around. The whole, your whole sense of being the center of the universe uh, is exploded. It, it falls apart. And it doesn't feel good in that moment, but spiritually and psychologically, it's, it's, it's so liberating. So I feel like the older I get, the less I know. Um, the more delighted and surprised I am when things show up that I wasn't expecting uh, and the more open I am. I just, I feel much more open. And somebody said once that that's, if, if there were a synonym for spirituality, it would just, it would be openness. And, and I can say that after all these years, I'm, I'm a more open person than I used to be. And that means surrendering to what I don't know and not imagining that I have uh, the answers or that I need to be right. You know, that's another huge thing and the need to be right. I, I, I'm not quite as attached to it as I used to be. And, and that, it's a big relief. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting because uh, one of the therapists that I had on the show a while back said, you can either be right or you can be in a relationship. And I thought, <laughs> oh, Lord, <laughs> that's that's one of those bumper stickers you don't forget. Um, uh, there's another one that would you would you rather be happy or would you rather be right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I read in one of your books that happiness is the foundation of spiritual life as well. So I guess being right could be connected to that um, in a linear sense. So, so what, what about letting people in? Do you feel that in your life today with that work on surrender, you have been able to let people in more easily or it just depends? Honestly, it goes both ways. I, 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 I do let people in more easily and I'm able to say no and have boundaries in a way that wasn't always possible in, in the past. I, I, I was I was abandoned at a very young age, and abandonment is one of those funny, uh, funny things, the way it forms you. So I was never going to be somebody who ever abandoned somebody else, so I would hold on endlessly to relationships that were either destructive or dysfunctional or, or simply had run their course. I would hold on you know, for, for, for dear life, and I finally come in my... In my old age, I'm 61, but I finally come now to accept the fact that relationships end. They change form. That's there's nothing tragic about it. I used to go to this very tragic place uh, when when anything ended or there was separation, um, and I'm not as traumatized as I used to be. So I'm I'm really able to. Let, I'm not as needy either. I'm able to let go more easily and to understand that um, we can love people from afar. And that choosing not to have uh, uh, choosing to have boundaries doesn't mean that you have to shut down your heart. So it's not tragic. It simply means that you're moving toward right relationship, as the Buddhists call it. So I, I, I can let people in more easily when all when um when my body says says it's right uh, and and it feels comfortable, harmonious. But but I have much much less tolerance for the unnecessary dramas and conflicts. That um, that I used to uh, have a lot of in in relationship. I just don't have the I don't have the stomach for it anymore. So mm-hmm. I'm able to say goodbye, uh, you know, with with a little bit less sense of failure. Mm. Oh, that's so that's so hopeful. Yes, I believe that that is one of those things after fifty that I heard Oprah say, and it's so true that you just you can't do it anymore if it's not really working. No. And you just learn to say no. And that no, boy, when you learn that no, that is just like, yes, it's yes. <laughs> that, that no becomes yes. Exactly. It's, it's so powerful to, to realize <laughs> you don't have to apologize for yourself. You don't have to overexplain <laughs> that, that yeah. no is a complete sentence. You can actually choose not to. And that doesn't mean that you're, not, that you're a person who you know, doesn't have a heart just means yeah. that you're 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 telling the truth about how you how you truly feel and sometimes that you know that can be painful. Oh, it's a good one. I want to know Mark, have you been surprised in all of your years of teaching? Have you been surprised by students along the way and if so, can you share a story where a student <laughs> really surprised you? <laughs> oh my god, that is an understatement. I am never not surprised. Uh, <laughs> by the stories that come up and how uh, appearance is deceptive. 
Um, you know, the person in the front row who looks like she doesn't have a friend in the world and she's kind of covered with dog hair and she's, you know, she's unkempt. She turns out to be the, you know, the, the, um, the, the dean of the school of, 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 of journalism at the University of Chicago, you know, or, or the person who looks like she's really together and everything is, you know, everything is great in her life, uh, is a, a, a fall down alcoholic who, you know, only manages to pull it together for a, a couple of hours a day. You know, people's people's appearance and what's going on behind the mask never ceases to amaze me. Uh, in terms of something that would surprise me, let me just give you one example. When I was teaching, uh, actually at Hollyhock last year, uh, up on Cortez, there was a woman in the class who gave the impression of being extremely strong. Uh, she was she was. People loved her. She was she was tough. There was something she was like a bit like a tank, um, and it turned out that she was one of the most um, tender-hearted, wounded um, people I, I've I've ever worked with. That inside this exterior, this external uh, strength was was a, a deep, deep feeling of uh, lots of self-confidence and uh, self-loathing and confusion. That's what surprised me the most is how confused she was underneath this veneer of certainty. Um, you know how we, we all overcompensate, and, and when you know, so so that's it's it's a good indicator when you see somebody who's showing so much strength and bravado outwardly that that, that they may be overcompensating for something inwardly. But with her, I didn't see it at first, but it was very very moving when she finally uh, when she was finally able to uh, admit her fears. And all of the places where she was holding so much pain that she could never felt like she could begin to share it with anybody. Mm. So all of that harder and larger looking armor fell away. It did. Through the writing. Through the writing. Because she accessed this, this child voice in her that was so deeply buried. She had been so brutalized by... Um, by a, an abusive father, uh, an absent mother, uh, a lot of poverty. She'd really been brutalized on different fronts as, as a girl. Uh, and, and that little girl she had buried so deep that she forgot she was there. And when she was able to begin to access her voice and have tenderness and mercy for that part of herself that she had, she had tried so hard not to, you know, to forget uh, and deny, like we were talking about earlier, uh, her heart opened. Uh, and mm. she, wept, she wept and she wept and she wept. She was like finding a piece of herself that she never thought she would, uh, you know, find again. Oh, so maybe going back to mind open, heart open, even though it's out of context by writing, she opened the thoughts that then was the doorway to the heart. That's exactly right. And and it's interesting. You're absolutely right because she was a very mental person. She happened to be very overweight. And, and and focus all of her stuff on her mind, and until she could accept the fact that that there that that there was these there, there were these stories, these voices going on, and that uh, there was a possibility that she was really shut down, she couldn't she couldn't feel it. So you're absolutely right. Well, and that brings me to this passage that I couldn't wait to read out loud from Sex, Death, Enlightenment, and this is the passage. Life as I'd known it cracked down the, wait, sorry, let me do this again. Life as I'd known it cracked down the middle from chimney to basement. The house I'd lived in, the self I'd believed in, 
The future I thought was waiting for me was suddenly condemned. Ah, so good. That's so good. So when you when you speak of a student, you know, who is just about to crack open that chimney to basement, you know, you can realize and wonder like how many people need that, aren't getting to that, and they need that same thing to just, you know, crack it open which would be that writing process and safety and guidance that you offer the students. So I just want to ask you to help people who are kind of terrified to think about opening up that vessel or to look inside of that trunk that was locked away in the basement or the chimney. What What is a way to give people a little bit of courage to join into one of these workshops or to be part of it without too much fear as to what may be unlocked? Well, a couple of things. First, understanding that we can do this work at our own speed uh, and that the work doesn't need to be shown to anyone else. So one can be completely secretive with what's on the page uh, and uh, take it to the uh, depth that you're ready to take it in your own time. So there's no kind of hitting students over the head with uh, with impossible tasks that, that, that just you know I- intimidate them more. Uh, but also understanding that with every inch that you step toward the truth, uh, your life begins to blossom. Uh, there, there are immediate uh, shifts in your consciousness, in your sense of self, uh, and in your, in your level of, of well-being uh, as you begin to reveal the truth. So you may not need to reveal everything uh, in, in one writing. If you come to one insight, say one thing that was shameful for you or un, un, unsayable before, you'll notice immediately the, the lightness that happens. And I see it, I see it all the time. Students who uh, on, a, on a Friday night in a workshop come in feeling oppressed and stressed and you know, freaked out about, about their lives. And on Sunday, leaving with this, this buoyancy and, and this, sort of, this sort of innocence uh, and, and, and having connected with other souls and, and truly shared at a level that we mostly don't share in our lives. That's so, so healing. Uh, so it, it's not nearly as, as, as scary as it uh, can seem. Uh, and we can control it. You know, we can uh, modulate it depending on our, on our needs and, and how we're feeling. You know, sometimes things are simply too tender to, to go at with a spear. You know, we need to go at it with a with with a you know with a a feather and and open it and open it slowly. And that's so true. Whether you're writing or processing, is the timeline is just so personal. But there is no finish line or a starting point that needs to be done in a certain time. No, it's really just to begin anywhere, start anywhere, just begin. Just begin. That's that's yeah. a, that's a great way to put it. And something else that's important is this: this there's, we have this myth of closure, uh, and mm. this idea that wounds, emotional wounds, actually close. Well, that's a myth. It's it's simply not true. Uh, you know, psychologists talk about this in, in much more expert ways that, than I can. But the takeaway is that our idea of closure is simplistic. You know, as if as if grief, as if loss, just got sutured up uh, and and was never felt uh, again. That that is simplistic. And when people bring that expectation to writing, it can be problematic uh, because they, they, they say, well, I wrote about it. Why do I still feel something? Well, <laughs> there's, there's no promise that you're never going to feel something again, but your understanding of it, your relation to it, how you respond to it is going to shift. Uh, but but it's, this doesn't make feelings go away. It, it makes feelings 
more more tolerable to us and, and understandable. Part of the stress that comes with extreme feeling is not knowing the source and, and, and mistaking it for, you know, for hysteria or for, or for, you know, anxiety or trauma. When in fact, we, when we come to understand our buttons, our triggers, it's not quite so scary to allow emotion to come up and to feel it and, 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 and observe it in passing because emotion passes very quickly through us when we don't clutch onto it with the mind. Therefore, tolerance is more effective than the concept of closure. Exactly. Tolerance, yeah. tolerance over closure. Yes, beautiful. Boy, is that helpful. You know, I've never thought of closure as being, um, to me, closure is so misleading. And, and perhaps it's because it's impossible to really pull off. But yes, thank you. That's, that's helpful to me to consider the fact that closure is the wrong word and the wrong concept. It is. Uh, and it doesn't really give relief because it's not maybe attainable. Exactly. It's not yeah. attainable. Right. Where do you go for inspiration right now in your life? Where, where, where are your bright spots and, and your guides? I know you mentioned Sharon, who's a friend, and she's amazing. Um, but where do you go to get met or fed or um, seen in the way that really works for your own alignment? Well, I, I spend a lot of time in nature. I left uh, in Manhattan, which was a big relief, and I now live out at the beach in eastern Long Island. So there's a lot of nature. There's a lot of sky in my life. There's a lot of water in my life now. There are a lot of deer and, and, and lawns and beauty in my life, and I get, I'm fed by that uh, every day. I, I find also I'm deeply fed by silence. I just, I just crave silence uh, in a way I never had before. It settles the being, and, and, and we can become so much more more present. And that's where I find my inspiration, is, is feeling like I am present. Uh, as far as teachers, uh, I'm uh, very fond of a handful of teachers. I think that Eckhart Tolle is amazing. Uh, I think that uh, Byron Katie is amazing. I think that uh, Adyashanti is amazing. I think that uh, Gangaji uh, is, is, is amazing. Those four teachers you can't go wrong with and i do a lot of uh, youtube sat song with with my various you know, kindred spirits uh, online that's one of the beautiful things about living in the electronic age we you know we we uh, trash it all the time and criticize it for good reason and look you know the, the problems with social media but the fact that i can i can uh, on my computer in my the privacy of my home you know have satsang or darshan with some of these these remarkable souls is a, is a major major gift so i encourage people to avail themselves of of youtube and the many teaching fantastic teachings that are on there i'm listening a lot to alan watts who, who was a, a great mm-hmm. teacher um and uh it's it's so i i, I feel like I, I i take inspiration from a lot of different uh, places, some of them deliberately spiritual, uh, and many of them in the course of, of, of everyday life. I, I really love my life, and, and you know, there are bad days, there are things things happen, but I'm, I'm truly grateful for, for every day of my life. I think that comes from almost dying and living with illness and, and a lot of loss, is you're, you're truly glad to be here, even when things are tough. Uh, and so for me, there's a, I get a charge out of getting out of bed in the morning and, and, yeah. and feeling good and, and having a full schedule. That, that's, that's joyous for me. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Is Gangaji still in Hawaii? I believe she lives in Ojai. Is she in Ojai? Mm. (laughs) Yes, Gangaji, that's such a good name to remember. I knew someone who followed her work in the 90s devoutly and learned a lot about her from him. So I wondered, because he worked with her in Maui. Um, Yeah, Yeah, she's a powerful teacher. She was a a student of the great Poonjaji. Yes. And as was another wonderful teacher named um, Muji, uh, a guy from Jamaica. Those are the, they're, they're the two primary disciples of Puntaji, and, and they're both such clear teachers. Yeah, I would recommend them to anybody. Mm, that's great to know. What is your, do you have a, a formal meditation practice, or is your silence just um, when you can get it and you grab it, or do you have a formal practice that you do every day or try to? I sit in the morning for 20 to 30 minutes, generally. Uh, sometimes the sitting is on a cushion. Sometimes it's on a chair. <laughs> sometimes there's a few times if one isn't, you know, feeling energetic, I'll do it. I'll do a bit of yoga and then, and, and then just do a deep relaxation. But I start with, the, I start with self-connection. Um, I love sitting with groups. I, for many years, I had a, a sitting group that met at my house and I really enjoyed that that weekly coming together. It, it was sort of, it was like church, but without without all of that, and and the communion of that I miss because I don't have that group anymore. Um, I, I enjoy formal sitting meditation practice. You know, doing thirty or forty five minutes, you know, on a cushion with other people. More, I guess that's why the Buddha recommended sangha as one of the major you know parts of of a, of a spiritual life. But I don't fret about it. Part of it is war. I'm not trying to get anywhere. You know, for mm. as a seeker, for a lot of years, I was trying to get somewhere. I, I, I was trying. I was sort of bringing all of my ambition to, from the world into my spiritual life, and, and and I absolutely don't feel that way anymore. So I don't beat myself up if if I'm you know having a, a day when I when I get distracted. It's it, it's a lot more. It feels a lot more fluid uh, and not punitive. And just integrated into my life. Uh, the other one of the other things I realized for ten years, I was basically on the road as a seeker. I was kind of a dharma bum, and I realized that I had there was this big split in my mind between what I thought of as worldly life and what I thought of as spiritual life. And then I realized that that was completely nonsense, and that if I didn't bring that spiritual dimension or perspective to day to day ordinary life, then it meant nothing. Uh, then it was all about integration. So, so around that time, formal practice changed in importance for me. You know, I enjoy it. I, I understand the benefits of it. But I'm not trying to be the world's greatest meditator. I just yeah. want to stay connected to, to source. Yep, yep. And for all of you listening, Mark's story is so inspiring. I mean, to know where Mark came from and what Mark endured will give anyone out there incredible hope and vision for what it looks like to really decide to live your life with all the options that are available. And and that's a great reminder for someone who might be feeling a little bit hopeless. So what would you say to the hopeless? I would ask them to write about why they feel hopeless. <laughs> what, what is the, what's the nature of the hopelessness? Uh, what, what are the causes? What are the stories uh, in the hopelessness? What about the hopelessness feels so permanent and doomed? Uh, the more we explore these feelings, the more they start to splinter off into 
related, but but more truthful, uh, more truthful um, experiences. So, for instance, hopelessness is made up of a lot of things. It's probably made up of grief. It's probably made up of fear. It's probably made up of anxiety. It may be made up of, of laziness. It may be a failure of the imagination. Um, it, it may be uh, an inability or, or uh, when one hasn't tried to reframe uh, their experience by looking at the narrative they're keeping around it. There are all kinds of ramifications of, a, of something like hopelessness. Hopelessness can be a kind of smokescreen for, for other more uh, relatable or, or uh, things that one can actually do something about. Hopelessness is hard to do anything about hopelessness. Well, I'm going to suggest that if there is that hopeless person out there or someone who's dying to work with Mark, come to Portland, Oregon in March, because the cool thing is you're going to be in Portland, Oregon, offering this very limited in the U.S. workshop that is about awakening through your own memoir and your own transformation. And it's memoir as a path of transformation, and that's March 9th through 11th, 2018, Portland, Oregon, and you'll find the info about that on Mark's web page, which I want to give the address to. Also, you've got a workshop coming up in Italy that sounds extraordinary in June, um, and then ways to work with Mark on the internet, or do you also work with clients on the phone or Skype? As my time allows, yes, I do. Okay. Yeah, and there's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Now, Mark's spelling. Take out a pen because this one come intuitively. <laughs> so Mark, obviously M-A-R-K, but Matusik is M-A-T-O-U-S-E-K, Mark Matusik. And when you Google Mark, you'll see all of these wonderful places to go to learn more and to grab onto all of his books, which are just riveting and they are really hard to put down once you start. So thank you, Mark, for the time that you gave all of us today. It's a real honor to speak to you. And um, a few closing words from you that we would all love to hear. Oh, thank you, Laura. Well, it was great to be with you as well. Um, I would, I would uh, invite people to uh, think of faith not as something that is necessarily religious or, or, or uh, fixated on a particular outcome. But faith in the sense of curiosity, faith in the sense of hope, uh, uh, interest in what has yet to be revealed. Tagore, the great Indian poet, uh, said that faith is the bird that feels the light and sings before the do- while the dawn is still dark. Uh, and I love that. And, and that, that's how I try to live my life when there are those moments that are confusing and we don't quite know uh, where we're headed. So thank you for, for having me, Laura. It was wonderful to, to talk to you. So wonderful to talk to you, Mark Matusik. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Feel Good Naked Radio with Laura Redmond. Please join us again for new shows every month on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until our next show, be you and feel great in your own skin. 